This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Yehuda Mirsky about his new book, Towards the Mystical Experience of Modernity, The Making of Rav Cook, 1865-1904, published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook stands as a, clo- as a colossal figure of modern Jewish history and thought, jurist, mystic, poet, theologian, communal leader, founder of modern chief rabbinate, is still the defining thinker of religious Zionism. He's indispensable for understanding modern Jewish thought, the contemporary state of Israel, and the most fundamental interactions of religion, nationalism, ethics, and spirituality. Despite countless studies of him, almost no full-fledged intellectual biography of him exists in any language. This study of the year is before his momentous move to Jaffa in 1904. Drawing on little-known works, including recently published manuscripts, begins to fill that gap. It traces life and times in the remarkably intense rabbinic intellectual milieu of late 19th century, Eastern Europe, and his path from profound, regularly rationalist traditionalism toward a dynamic theology and spiritual practice, weaving together Kabbalah, philosophy, universal ethics, and a romantic mysticism. Yehuda, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, thank you. Thank you so very much for having me. Yehuda, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. (laughs) Well, um, uh, I'm from New York originally. I grew up in the west side of Manhattan. As I always say, the pre-gentrified west side of Manhattan. I grew up um, in the world of modern orthodoxy. My father spent essentially his entire life at Yeshiva University, or he was a, my father was an orthodox, my father, David Mirsky, was an orthodox rabbi and a professor of English and Hebrew literature and university administrator and so on. And so I, I grew up very much in this home characterized by a kind, by a sort of a deep religious humanism. Um, in my youth, the culture hero for us was a Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, you know, the great, you know, neo-Kantian rationalist, existentialist, uh, Talmudic genius and all. Um, I discovered the writings of Rav Kook when I studied in Shabbat Haaretzion, in Gush Etzion, um, in the late 1970s. And um, was very captivated by, um, by this celebration of, of subjectivity, of personal religious experience, by, by his combining a profound nationalism with profound universalism, um, by his theology of culture, right? That he's seeing, Rav Cook had this way of seeing all sorts of facets of human culture um, and, and societal development, you know, everything that people do to try to make their world's better in, in thought or practice. He saw as like a manifestation of God's presence in the world. Um, and also to be perfectly honest in those years, you know, another side of Rev Cook's teaching, which he's 
is very well known, is, is that he had a frankly messianic reading of um, his times, late 19th, early 20th century. So I mean, we could talk about that a bit, a bit more. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and this, his, and, and he saw Zionism and even ironically enough or powerfully secular Zionism is itself a stage in the, the, the great, the dialectics of, of, of redemption, uh, directed by God. And he died in 1935. Um, and then later on the night, 1960s and all well, the more so in the 1970s after the Yom Kippur War, his son Svi Yehuda, um, interpreted his father's teachings in a manner that seemed to uh, that undergirded much of the effort of the the vanguards of the settlement movement in Israel, um, and that's where of course becomes rather a controversial thinker, and because he was controversial in other ways before. Um, and to be perfectly honest, in those years, late 1970s, I was as I put it, a fellow traveler of the messianic wing of the settler movement. I was never quite entirely there because at the end of the day, I still did have this like, you know, liberal upbringing on the West side of Manhattan, um, which was never quite, I mean, which I couldn't, which one could never get rid of. And I'm glad I never got rid of it. Um, but I was very, very taken with that. And, um, over time, I moved politically to the left, but my fascination with Ruf Cook never ended. And, and crucially, one of the things that's so fascinating to me about him is um, the way in which somebody who is at one and the same time a, a jurist, you know, a master of, of Jewish law, rendering judicial opinions and writing Talmudic commentaries, and on the very same day, we could write these shimmering mystical visions, right? These like extremely far-reaching, far-reaching uh, theological and 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 philosophical explorations. Um, I, in my professional life, for a number of years, I worked in Washington in the political system, um, including in the uh, United States State Department's Human Rights Bureau. I was there during the heyday of the Oslo years. And the murder of Yitzhak Rabin knocked me silly and made me decide it was time to go back to school and get to work. The first few years of my doctoral work, um, I was in a program in the study of religion, not in Jewish studies as such. I, my doctoral work was in Islamics and, and Arabic. Um, but at some point, I realized that I, sort of speak, had a reckoning to do <laughs> with, you know, I said, like, you know, sometimes you realize in a deep sense, you have to go home which is, you know, in some ways I haven't say what happened to me in the State Department. It was this very archetypally Jewish moment, modern Jewish moment, when, you know, you're engaged in some broader arena trying to save the world. And then something happens that that brings you abruptly face to face with these like core deep parts of your own Jewish identity. And in a deep sense, you realize you need to 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 go home because that's where the real work is. Um, and so, as I said, I did Arabic and Islam for years, then for, for, for several reasons, some having to do with just the way the departments and programs at Harvard were structured, but also of what was really burning in my soul, I realized I needed to deal with Rev Cook. Now, I, when I started work on this, I thought I was going to be writing about his ethical theory. The project, my, my prospectus was on Rev Cook's ethical theory. And now if I'm sort of talking about this book, um, as I was working on it, just the way my mind works is that, well, I had to start at the beginning. I mean, over the, you know, 
in the 20 or some years since I first discovered Rothbuch, I'd been learning him and studying him and reading about him, but I sort of started going deeper and rereading things and looking at things again with with an eye towards towards trying to write some sort of meaningful um, study. And I just found myself being engrossed by by his early years and just trying also because his early years were so the more I dug into the material, the less they were what I thought they would be in two, two, in two crucial ways. One, um, you know, I, okay, you knew he came from Eastern Europe and one had this sense that Eastern European Jewish intellectual life was divided into three neat camps of, you know, Hasidim and their um, traditionalist rabbinic opponents, the Mitnagdim, the, the Lithuanians, the Litvaks, and the Maskilim, the Enlighteners. But as I was reading Rav Kook and the people in his milieu and also trying to looking at who were his teachers and who were his classmates, and th- those categories just, just seemed to obscure as much as they reveal. Those, those categories seemed much too hard and fast to capture the actual reality I was seeing. Then in terms of his substance, you know, one knew that he was this like very Kabbalistic mystic and, you know, that, that he was interested in philosophy, but the philosophy he was interested in was very modern philosophy, you know, sort of Hegelian type things or Kant or Nietzsche or what have you. But as I'm reading him, I'm seeing medieval philosophy all over the place. Maimonides and not only my, I mean, and not Udalevi, interestingly. Um, Maimonides and uh, Yosef Albo and and uh, Yitzchak Aramaza Kedat Yitzchak are these works that he's quoting over and over, and he's working with them and through them. And so, like, I was just, I was so, what I found was so different than what I had anticipated that I was just sort of trying to wrap my head around it. And then, crucially, I had lunch with my dear friend Ari Ackerman, who himself is a scholar of uh, medieval and modern Jewish thought. He just published a new book on uh, Chastai Kreskis. And on the side of Crescus that people usually don't think about, which is Crescus's thought about law, about halacha. Um, and he's written on Rav Cook and other things, Ari. And we had, it was a Thanksgiving day, and we had a, um, a lavish Thanksgiving day um, repast in the, um, the, the cafeteria at Givat Ram, the site of the National Library of Israel, where we were working all the time. And I was talking to him about my dissertation, how I was kind of stuck on at this and that. And Ari listened for me and he said, you know, it sounds like you're actually not writing a study of Rav Cook's ethics. It sounds to me like you're actually writing his intellectual biography. So why don't you do that? And it was great advice. And I'd like to tell that story because it's, it's a story I love to tell my students because here I am working on something and floundering and a good friend in who was a good listener was able to pay attention in, you know, rather unromantic or unglorious circumstances of just like a, you know, dingy cafeteria near a library and, and, and put make help and make order in my, for my own mind about what it was that I was trying to do. And then I understood, yeah, this is what I needed to do. And then it still took me a good few years to do it, but that's how I came to, to write this. So th- that's a great um, summary if we look at the dissertation and how you came to write the dissertation. What was the journey from the actual dissertation to the book itself? Okay, so the dissertation, again, was sort of titled, you know, an intellectual and spiritual biography of Abraham Isaac Cook, or Aramitsa Cook, from 1865 to 1904. 
Um, when I completed the dissertation in 2007, it seemed to be ready for publication then and there. But as fate would have it, it was around that time that um, Yale University Press asked me to do um, a book that you and I talked about last time we talked, which is a brief biography, a brief a sort of a book length essay on Ruff Cook, the entirety of Ruff Cook's lifetimes, thought and legacy. Um, and, and frankly, Yale very much wanted that book to happen. And also I thought it would be before even revising the dissertation actually forced me to plow through the entirety of his, of his corpus and the whole life story, um, which I thought would be helpful for, for going back when I was, when I eventually would be revising the dissertation, because then it would, the, the dissertation is about, was about his early years. And this way I could, you know, cause, cause one of the big questions of course is Rev Cook, Rev, like so many things is Rev Cook's work is taken as a canon and read as of a piece. And I'm trying to introduce development and historical context and, and, and um, periodizations in his thought. So it's, it was, it was a helpful exercise that to sort of just clarify for me what is in the early writings and what wasn't there. So it took a, I'd spent a few years on that. And then I went back to writing the dissertation, but then as fate would have it, um, in the course of the time that I was writing that other smaller book on him, a number of manuscripts of his from this earlier period of his life came to light. Because um, as you may know, one of the, you know, one of the, you know, Rev Cook's studies is a real subfield in study of, of Jewish thought, certainly in Israel. Um, and within the world of Rev Cook studies, um, a running theme is the state of the texts and the state of the manuscripts, and the fact that much of his work is still unpublished, and manuscripts are in private hands all over the place. And every now and then, some of them dribble out, some of them not. Starting around 25 years ago, more and more began to come out. So the point is, I mean, there were two stories that I can tell you about that. Um, Rev Cook dies in 1935. In 1937. Uh, there's a committee called, you know, the Committee for the Publication of the Works of Our Late Master, Rabbi Cook. And it's headed by these very significant people, Mir Barilan, um, head of religious Zionist at the time, um, Yehuda Leib Fishman, Hakoin Fishman Maimon, who eventually becomes one of the signatories of Israel's Declaration of Independence, and other uh, sorts of worthies. And they published this prospectus in 1937. And um, then they... Um, in it, they list, you know, they list a number of works, some of which we know, and then they list a work um, entitled And the New Guide to the Perplexed that our that our master wrote when he was still in Europe. What is this thing? Um, I spoke to, you know, Rev Cook's son, and sort of was the became sort of very much the canonical um, interpreter of his father's legacy, Rev Tsuyuda. Cook, passed away in 1982. I spoke to one of his most important disciples, uh, Rabbi Yeshayahu Hadari. He was a wonderful man. He was very generous with his time with me. We had a long, wonderful conversation. And I asked him about this. And he said, Rabbi said, there's no such thing. No such book existed. Okay. Um, 
And then I thought, well, one of the things that I had figured out in the course of my work was that there was this real Maimonidian, there was very Maimonidian infrastructure to Rav Kook's early thought. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, that medieval philosophy in general, Maimonides in particular, were incredibly important to him. And often, and 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 not infrequently, especially as time goes by, like his his mystical explorations sort of take off from where Maimonides leaves off, or like some of the Maimonides concepts and categories, and we can talk about this more if you'd like, sort of like provide a kind of internal scaffolding on which the Kabbalistic ideas arise, the Kabbalistic edifice arises. So I thought, well, okay, that makes sense, you know, that there was this, that this was like that, that whatever these people wrote in 1937 was a way of characterizing um, these Maimonidian writings of his. Okay. And then, you know, a couple years later, um, I, I opened my email and a very dear friend of mine, Hanoch Ben Pazi, who's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scholar and human being and teacher and everything, he's at Bar Ilan University, sent me an email, sent me a PDF and an email, said a, a student of mine said that he got, that somebody sent him this. Do you know what it is? And I started reading this. It was a PDF. He said, it's something by Rav Cook, but, you know, it seems, but what? And I started reading it and I realized Holy cow, this is it. This is the lost new guide for the perplexed that Riff Cook wrote. And it had been under wraps for decades and nobody quite knows how it came out. And, you know, it's a whole story how it came out. So that was something I had to add. Then another one, the book, the, 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 the revised dissertation was finished. The book was finished. And then I get an email from a friend of mine in Israel. You had great news. A new manuscript of Rav Cook's from the period that you're working on has just been published in a really nice edition, and it's only about 500 pages long. You know, you should be able to. So that actually turned out to be, as, as we've talked about in the past, you know, Rav Cook wrote a lot of spiritual diaries. That was like a great innovation of his, and this was his very first one, written in the 1890s. Did these books make me did these new so th those added a good few years, but one of the questions is: Did of course did this make me change my fundamental approach to him? And the answer, by and large, is no. In that, at least to my mind, and of course other people are free to disagree with me on this, the the fundamental trajectory that I thought he traced, that I thought I traced in his thought starting off as a kind of something like a rationalist, then taking a kind of inward turn towards a kind of personal subjectivity um, that sort of goes hand in hand with his, his study of the Kabbalah, um, and then eventually emerges in a kind of, a, 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 you know, what, what Charles Taylor, Charles Taylor's book, Sources of the Self, was, and it's extremely important for me, um, you know, kind of a full-blown subjective expressivism. Um, I, I think that that basic trajectory still held. What, what the new publications did drive home to me um, were one, um, one of the things that drove home to me that there was a distinction in his writing between esoteric and exoteric writing earlier than I had thought. That, you know, if you take a look this, um, I mean, uh, as it turned out, you know, this, this book I mentioned, this sort of new guide for the perplexed, 
um, which he wrote around the turn, the very turn of the 19th century, of the 20th century. Um, in the dissertation, I had already gone through some of the, but oh, by the way, also some other things that came out were some spiritual diaries from that period as well, um, which made me revisit some things. And, and I found that, again, that his writing, that he was more deeply engrossed in the Kabbalah from earlier on. Um, and also that that sort of a, that that he had a kind of esoteric and exoteric writing from the beginning that that a number of his writings that were outward facing you know meant for public consumption including this new guide for the perplexity just never published in his lifetime for a whole bunch of reasons um that philosophical and rationalist as they were underneath them or under, or it's a number of the ideas underneath them were these Kabbalistic ideas that he was working on in his notebooks. And that was like very, very interesting. Uh, very interesting to me. Um, part of the detective work, for instance, another, another, you know, I mentioned some spiritual notebooks of his came out in, in, you know, his a small treatise, uh, by the way, his son, you know, Reb Cook was, would have had lots and lots of editors in his lifetime and afterwards. Um, and the two most famous are his son, who I mentioned earlier, of Tsuyuda, and his other disciple, Rav David Cohen, the Nazir, who wrote his, who edited his magnum opus of Orot HaKodesh. And, um, and, and Rav Tsuyuda was an extremely skillful editor. <laughs> and also, in, in, I'd say, like, one, now that we, now that Rav Cook's notebooks and journals have been published in the original form, we understand how badly, how badly they needed editing. You know, there was just no way to just sort of publish them as is. I mean, he tried doing that once, didn't quite work. So there was, a, uh, I, I'd, I'd written at length in the dissertation about a beautiful treatise called Musaravicha, um, and figured out that it had been published, it had been written largely in the 1890s, and I, it's sort of, it's presented as a treatise on Musar, you know, sort of like moral self-cultivation, and that it seemed to be, and I sort of read it very much as Rav Cook's response to the Musar movement and so forth. And then some of the notebooks that were published um, seemed to turn out to have been the sources for this, for much of this, not all of it. So then that was, that was sort of like some of the philological detective work was then, or, or something, let me put it this way. What I deliberately decided to do then was take the section, take the chapter in which I talked about Musar Vicha, in which I'd followed the progress of that book and rearrange it per the progression of the original texts in the journal, right? So Tzviuda presented a very elegant rendition of his father's thought. And I sort of took the parts and, and rearranged them chronologically um, with, the, with the work of this journal. I'm just mentioning that because people might find it methodologically interesting. Like when you have a work, when you have a work that, you know, a, a very polished work um, that works very well. I mean, this treatise Musar is, is a gem, you know, um, and then when you see the sources on which it was based, on which from which it was drawn, and if they were written in an order different than the one in which they are presented in the text, then it's an opportunity, if you feel like doing this, to then reconstruct the progress of the, the, the progress of the author's mind. And also see what were the parts that were left out. And in this case, especially because Svita was editing this as a text for a comparatively speaking, broader readership, um, you know, all the Kabbalistic parts that are left out and also and, and what are, what are, what are the themes there? So some of what went on with this, with this effort. 
So before we get into the meat and potatoes and, and the actual content of, of the book, I'd love to just understand one difference between the dissertation and the book itself, and that's the title. So what, why the change of title between the dissertation okay. and the book? Two things. One is extremely, extremely prosaic, and this is a message to all the graduate students out there. You know, the title has an extremely workmanlike title. I mean, the dissertation has a very workmanlike title. It's an intellectual spiritual biography of Abraham, Abraham Yitzhak Cook from 1865 to 1904. It's also, a, you know, a friend of mine who was much more experienced in the academic world told me um, when I was writing the dissertation, give your dissertation a very um, workmanlike title. And because if because then if you give if the poetic sounding title you give to the dissertation itself, when you send it to a university press to be published, they'll just say, oh, all he's doing is sending us his dissertation. He hasn't done anything else. OK, that's that's sort of the, the most prosaic answer. But the other answer, in addition to just like sort of the, the poetry of towards the mystical experience of modernity, it. It, this was a way, I mean, because as I shared with you, there's a very, very um, complimentary but searching and at times critical review of my book published by Professor Alon Goshen Gutstein um, in the latest issue of Tel Aviv Review of Books. And by the way, this is a great opportunity for me to just point out, folks, Tel Aviv Review of Books is a wonderful uh, online publication that's well worth reading in their podcast. Not if you don't mind my mentioning an alternative, po- a different podcast, but it's a podcast much, uh, very much worth listening to, you know, he actually thinks that given what my book is, that original simpler title was more accurate and more descriptive or what have you. Um, but I think I was trying to convey something here. You know, it's it's hard to put into words what is this thing that Riff Cook is doing. Because the man's thought is a continent unto itself. Um I was trying, so if I take, if I were to take the words of this, well, I think the making of Rev Cook 1865 to 1904, okay, that sort of keeps a lot of the sense of that this is a biography, but it's also, this is what goes into the coming to be of someone like this. Bearing in mind, as I say at the outset, of course, you can't ever, I, I and nobody else can ever really say, we can't even say about ourselves with any, with definitely who are we, where, where, where did we come from, right? We're mysteries to ourselves. The people closest to us are mysteries to ourselves. Indeed, like these, you know, obviously an historical figure, a great figure, and part of the part of the hold that they have on us, these great figures, is that is precisely this deep sense of mystery at their core that are always receding from us. But still, so the subtitle, The Making of Rev Cook, though, is a bit, you know, sort of fairly descriptive of like the, the, the life and times, the coming of age of this thinker. Towards the mystical experience of modernity. Well, uh, first note the word towards, right? That he's moving towards something and he's not quite there. It's towards all sorts of things, towards the land of Israel, towards God, towards himself, towards, but it's also not quite there. Now this phrase, mystical experience of modernity, it's a, it's, it's, that's actually a phrase that I first used. One of the first times I taught Rev Cook was actually in a series of adult education classes in Washington. Then Washington, D.C., I think it may still be there. There was this wonderful um, adult education program called the Jewish Study Center. And I gave a series of classes on Rev Cook entitled The Mystical Experience of Modernity, or Modernity as Mystical Experience. And, and this phrase, it's a way of capturing, capturing a, that there is something profoundly modern about this man. Not just that he's responding to modern, responding to contemporary currents, 
but the ways in which he is thinking about things are res are at the one and the same time deeply traditional and yet deeply resonant and engaged with the dramas of modern history and thought. And that there is an experiential dimension here. Like you have people engaging with this or that aspect of modern thought. How do I square Immanuel Kant and the tradition? How do I square Hegel with the tradition? How do I think about this? How do I think about that? But Rav Cook, I mean, he's not the only thinker probably, but with him, it's just so vivid, just opens himself up to the experience of modernity the experience of revolution, the experience of change, the experience of reaction, and the experiences of other people, right? His, 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 his trying as best he can, given that he is who he is, and that he's never about to abandon his own positions entirely, trying to enter imaginably into the, into the lives and the experiences of other people, right? So when, so people that it really fascinates him, fascinate him all the time, the, um, the, the ideological rebels, of late 19th, early 20th century Eastern European Jewry, the Zionists and the socialists. He doesn't look only at their ideological statements. He looks at what they're feeling. So he's not just reading their, you know, he's not just reading the ideas with which they are criticizing him and the rest of rabbinic tradition. What, how are they experiencing Jewish tradition? And how are they experiencing finding themselves in Zionism and socialism? And what does that disclose about the truths of the world? And then this tricky word, mystical. In, indeed, you know, in, in the introduction of the book, I try as best I can to problematize, you know, in good academic fashion, to problematize the term as I'm using it. And it's something, you know, we all know, I talk about this in class, right? If we were to go back in time, if we were to ask, you know, St. John of the Cross, what kind of mystic he was, he wouldn't know what I'm talking about, right? If we were to ask Rabbi Moshe Cordovero in Svat in the 16th century, or if we were to ask, you know, the great Sufis like Al-Halaj, what sort of mystics they are, they wouldn't know what we mean, right? You know, what do you mean? I, I you know, I'm, I'm following the cross, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interpreting, you know, the 600,000 meanings of the Torah, you know, I'm, 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 I, you know, I'm passionately commuting with the truth of Allah. Right. So it's this it's this neutral category. And, you know, as Boaz Haas and many others have pointed out, you know, I mean, as many people would right? there is also essentially the way of restating what I just said. There's no such thing as mystical experience in the abstract that's detached from some cultural context, some tradition. And 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 the sense of mysticism as, you know, this very inward personal subjective experience is, of course, very colored by the historical experience of Protestantism and all of that, which is true. Um, but it's sort of like the best word I had to try to convey both his engagement with the Kabbalah and that his engagement with the Kabbalah is not merely on an intellectual level. It's funny, we don't think of Kabbalah. I mean, the Hasidic movement has so utterly captured the imaginations and the understandings of how people think about Kabbalah in the modern world that we lose sight of the fact that it's just one version of Kabbalistic thought and that a highly intellectualized versions of Kabbalistic thought went right alongside them, right? And for our purposes, most importantly, the Lithuanian Kabbalah, which was very, was one of the things I trace and try to trace in the book. 
um, is how, how important it was for, for Rav Kook. Um, and, and finally, I guess the mystical experience of modernity is also obviously I'm playing, like anyone who uses a phrase like mystical, mystical experience, I'm playing with, um, with William James, right? Varieties of religious experience. And, and there the sense is that for Rav Kook, like whatever it is that a religious experience is, right? Sort of like a profound, highly personal and yet transcendent from the individual's point of view, you know, yet transcendent conception of God's presence in the world is something that one is, is thinking cognitively and, and emotionally feeling and acting on um, that for of cook modernity itself was such a point of encounter between man and God, right? The very chaos of modernity, the the forces, you know, the, the forces of creativity and destruction unleashed by modernity, um, the, 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 you know, the sort of the surging towards new kinds of freedom and new kinds of self-expression and new kinds of politics and new kinds of all and art and all sorts of things. Um, unleashed by, by modernity, or it's not just something that religion has to deal with. They are themselves, and how you go through these events, how you experience them, um, is itself a disclosure of God's presence in the world. Now, one last word about this word experience. The Hebrew word for experience is chavaya. And that was coined not by Rav Kook, but by Aaron David Gordon who um, is also somebody worth talking about at very great length, um, 1856, I think, to 1922. Um, and Gordon is one, you know, one is tempted to call him the secular version of Rev Koch, but he's not really secular. But, you know, Gordon is this, you know, sort of this, 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 this agricultural worker, pioneer, philosopher, um, who coins this Hebrew word? I mean, Gordon is is very engaged with not not to the extent to which Rav Cook is, but very engaged with with, with classical Jewish texts, Kabbalah and Chassidut, also creatively reinterpreting them, but 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 in, through a very different sort of um, in different very different sort of way. And he coins this word chavaya, right, which sort of is trying to ring together the word for chayim and the name of God. And the words for existence and being, havaya, havaya, sort of like existence, being, godliness, enacted in life, havaya. And um, in the in in the last in the concluding chapter of the book, one of the things I try to you know throughout the book, I, I sort of draw a set of parallels between Rav Kook and a yeshiva student classmate of his, a classmate of his in yeshiva, Michal Yosef Berdachevsky, who becomes the enfant terrible of, of Hebrew revolutionary literature. And one of the ways in which of characterizing Rav Kook's move to Palestine is that Gordon becomes, in a deep sense, his opposite number, not Berdachevsky, right? This person who's, who himself is also seeing this new Jewish encounter with the land um, and, and, and this, re, under, this refiguring of Jewish collective, meaning of Jewish collective existence, as in the framework of also some sort of more broadly universal framework of the ethical life of, of humanity, becomes his real opposite, becomes, becomes his genuine opposite number outside 
outside outside the the rabbinic camp and that he's and that he's moving towards that towards that experience so that's what i tried to convey successfully or not or not artfully um or not in uh, in this title so if we're focusing on the making of rough cooks you touched a bit what that could mean so his formative life experiences his education his marriages etc his his life but I wonder as well if, if you had intended or if one could understand this as well as you're making Rev Cook. You're in some ways making him. You're... Oh, yeah. No, of course. I mean, you know, it's like this, right? Um, you know, is this my own interpretation and understanding? Yes, of course. Right. Um, do I think like any work, you know. Like any work, there are elements in this book that are just the sort of standard things somebody who likes to think of himself, if not, you know, I don't know if I would do the honor of calling myself an historian, but somebody who's like a student of historians um, trying to make historically credible, plausible arguments based on the evidence at hand. And sometimes philologically also, this text, that text, which came first, which came last, who wrote it. And yes, there's a broader interpretive frame that I'm using. There's a larger story that I'm telling. Inevitably, that entails leaving things out. It inevitably entails emphasizing some things, de-emphasizing others. And this gets to, to broader questions of how we do scholarship. Right? So we know that sort of like pure objectivity, whatever that might mean, is largely a chimera, right? I mean, even if you think of sort of in, in the sorts of worlds of Jewish studies that I pass through, you know, the thing that seems like what could be like the most sort of objective study, say, establishing an accurate text, right? Establishing an accurate version or earlier, the better, the better versions of sort of some canonical text based on the manuscripts that you have at hand, right? Something that Talmud, scholars of Talmud and Kabbalah and medieval Hebrew poetry and so forth do all the time. So on the one hand, that's the closest you can come to something like scientific empirical certitude in this business. And even there, it's laden with assumptions, right? You know, Daniel, Daniel Abrams, my friend Daniel Abrams in his work on Sefer Abahir, arguing that there is no one original version of Sefer Habahir, that this thing comes about in among circles of people who are working with these ideas and pub and writing different versions of them simultaneously. So there too is like, he's taking a stance on what philology is, right? The idea that I can, that I can reconstruct a text entirely. I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing it's, it has to do with larger debates in intellectual life. Will I ever be able truly to, re can I be sure that this is like a reconstruction of the absolute text that I have? Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, you know? I mean, um, you know, I'm something, I wrote an article about, well, ago about my work that my grandfather was named Samuel Kalman Mursky, work that he did on the Meiri and the Meiri's treatise on repentance, Chibura Chuva. And there was another scholar who worked on Avram Sofer who came out with it, who I was working with a manuscript and, you know, it seems that my grandfather had the better manuscript, the manuscript that he, version that he was working with seemed to have been the better one. But most of the time, we don't have manuscripts in the author's own hand, 
We usually have copies of things anyway. So, so what I'm trying to say is that, so this is like a very long digression about how even the most seemingly empirically objective side, side of historical research has some element of subjectivity because the element of subjectivity is even in framing the questions. Let me put it a little differently. Say Maimonides, right? You know, like nobody would, would disagree that Maimonides is born sometime in the 1130s and dies about 1204. Is that significant? Like for somebody like me, like I'll mention, you know, I mentioned thinkers like that. I mentioned Gordon a few minutes ago. I made a point of saying his dates. Why? Because people like us tend, or me, tend to think that these kinds of historical context, this bit of historical context and framing is extremely important for understanding who the person is. Maimonides, what? Maimonides doesn't know that he's born in, in those years, in the 1100s, or put a little differently. Maimonides doesn't know that he's a product of this Arabic Islamic civilization all around him. Of course he does. But he doesn't think that that's what's really important. He doesn't think that that's what you need to know in order to understand him because he's because his conception of truth is something timeless and universal. Okay. Um, so all of this being said, you know, stepping, getting, get drawing, get coming a little back down closer to earth. Yeah, this is my interpretation of Rev Cook. I was reading all these texts of his and trying to make sense of them. And I couldn't see, like, what was, I just couldn't make sense. And I started thinking about Charles Taylor that I'd read in graduate school, Sources of the Self and Making Modern Identity. And I reread it. And yeah, this seemed to make sense. And also I had conversations with Shlomo Fisher, who's a wonderful scholar of religious Zionism and Israeli religious sociology and much else, who also had been using Charles Taylor to understand Rob Cook. And his book, hopefully, his long-awaited masterpiece, Shlomo Fisher's book, will hopefully come out before long. Um, and so this interpretive scheme that Taylor was using made sense. Now, it made sense to me, right? Somebody else might say, well, you know, like, for somebody like Udomirsky, somebody like Charles Taylor putting putting something in terms of, like, a progression from a kind of you know, rationalist thought to a neo-Augustinian turn towards the self emerging, once detached from traditional forms of religious authority, emerging into a kind of full-blown personal expressive subjectivity. Yeah, somebody might say, yeah, that makes sense to you. <laughs> there are any number of people who might say, this they, this is nonsense. This is like, who talks like this? What What is this craziness? Say there. I mean, they're allowed, you know, they're entitled. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's my interpretation. Where... One thing that I say in this book that could be a little controversial, more so than like, you know, you know, <laughs> it's like only an academic, like only somebody deep in the, in the, in the weeds would say, wow, what a controversial statement. Rabbi, Rabbi Cook was influenced by Maimonidian rationalism. Right? No, when I, when I, when I say that the land of Israel hardly appears in his early writings, or when it does appear, it does not appear as a category of thought. You know, of course, he recognizes the significance of the land of Israel and talks about it periodically because it doesn't, right? But it's not an organizing principle of his thought the way it becomes later on. Okay, that's a controversial claim because of the 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 the, the profound emphasis on the land of Israel in his later writings, which then, after his death, becomes politically monumentally significant because of the interpretation of his son Rutzfiuda. 
Now, I don't deny the place of the land of Israel in his thought after 1904. And people can talk about, you know, we talked a little bit in the past. We could talk more about like what I personally think of viewed as interpretation. But I could just tell you that one of the only, I guess, okay, here's a methodological observation here. Something that reassured me that when I, when I sort of began to come to the conclusion that the land of Israel wasn't playing a very important role for him um, was, was, was how surprised I was by it and that I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to see the land of Israel from the beginning, and I didn't. And then when I have bits of external evidence, people who are involved in the beginnings of religious Zionism in the 1890s or even before that, but certainly in the 1890s, when they find out that Avram Yitzchak Cook is moving to Eretz, to the land of Israel to become the chief rabbi of Jaffa, they don't know why, because they've never heard of him and he's never been involved with them and he's never been to a Zionist Congress and he's never even been to a meeting of the religious Zionists, right? There was a, that there, even the, the proto-Zionist movement, Zion, had a branch in the Velazhin Yeshiva where he studied and I sort of, I went, I managed to get a whole thanks to, an, Thanks to a footnote in the work of the remarkable Shaul Stamfer, um, I I tracked down like a history of the 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 Chovavetzion chapter in the Velazhin Yeshiva, and Avram Yitzchukuk wasn't there. So there's a story. Rav Maimon said that one time he asked Rav Kook, uh, you know, gee, were you a part of it, that secret of that of that Chovavetzion group in Velazhin? And Rav Kook said, well, it was a secret. It was a clandestine group. So even if it was, I, even if I was, I couldn't tell you, right? And he said it with a chuckle. But it's sort of as I could tell, he wasn't there. And it's just the word, it doesn't appear. It doesn't show up in his writings. And then a further thing, to get us back into the weeds or the politics of it, Reb Cook made a point of not publishing his father's writings from before he moved to the land of Israel. If you take a look at the collection of Rev Cook's articles, like his 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 topical essays and so forth, published uh, first in 1984 under the title Ma the editors in their preface say Rebbe Zvihuda told us not to publish the things that were written before he came to the land of Israel. And indeed, when 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 you know some of them, there were some scholarly articles. There was there was a scholar who died a couple of years ago, a wonderful man named Michael Tzvi who had been a student of Rav Tzviuda and then became an academic scholar. And he wrote an article years ago about, you know, Rav Cook's earlier writings and how the land of Israel didn't really appear. And Tzviuda cut him off. He cut off communications with him. Tzviuda used to say, you know, because these articles of that, with the, especially what's striking is that, is that Rav Cook wrote a series of four long, of uh, sort of like three long essays um, in just around at the turn of the 20th century, in which it was where he first publicly came out as a supporter of Jewish nationalism, and there too the land of Israel doesn't appear. Um, and and in this in this um, in this unpublished you know guide to the perplexed, the new guide for the perplexed, published as Lenuvuchei Hador, um, in a wonderful edition by Shahar Arachmani. Um, there too, not only that, you know, you know, in, in, the, in the early Zionist movement, there was this argument about like, you know, the, when there was this proposed Uganda plan and there were, um, they were called territorialists uh, and there were some people who were in favor of it. And Rav Cook, he doesn't come out in favor of it, but he, when he lists like people who are vibrant parts of the Jewish people, he says, you know, and there's like, there's the liberals and there's the socialists and there's the territorialists, right? He's, he's, these people are in favor of the Uganda plan and he's not reading them out. So one so you could interpret it in all sorts of ways, but you have to interpret it. But again, I mean, what, what I 
and this is sort of a, a broader methodological point that I make to, to my students, especially doctoral students or students who are doing substantial research projects. You know, if you're working on material and as you're working on the material, you see that you need to change your mind, that's a good sign because it means you're paying attention. It means that you're not coming with some Procrustean bed of your preconceptions and your theories and just like plopping it down onto the materials like a waffle iron, but that you're actually listening and you need to check yourself. And so, sometimes your initial, some of the things you, some of the things you thought at the outset may actually turn out to be correct. And others, others not. I mean, maybe we've gone a little afield from your question, but you know, earthquake has a way of doing that, I guess. Scatterbrained people like me have a way of doing that too. <laughs> Focusing on the Zionist side of things and, and Zionism, you mentioned in your book that at least at some point, certainly the beginning of Rav Cook's encounter with Zionism, some of his approaches perhaps were, were naive. There's some naivete to, to his approach and to his writings. So I'm curious if you could go a bit into that and and how he his thought developed and became more sophisticated. Well, before we get to naivete, an important point here, sometimes over the years people thought, and again, because because only in the past 25 years have we had Rav Cook's writings in original form, so people have been working with edited volumes, et cetera, et cetera. So many people had this idea that Rav Cook, for some reason or other, perfectly, perfectly, you know, fell in love with Zionism, and so then created this theology to, to justify it or around it. And one of the things that I think emerges from my work is that that was not the case, but that Zionism as he understood it in his own rather distinctive way. He was sort of like a member of a Zionist movement with only one member, so to speak. Um, the way Lahavdil, the way, you know, so to speak, the way like John Milton, it was like we used to say Milton belonged to a church that had only one member. Um, Zionism seemed to give an answer to issues, philosophical and theological questions that had been preoccupying him for a long time. Two in particular. So I was, after having done this whole long riff with you about how the land of Israel isn't really there. Two issues that I think among, among the issues that preoccupied Rav Kook from very early on, already in his 20s, are two questions. One is the relationship of body, mind, and soul. And the other is the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, especially with regard to Jewish morality and non-Jewish morality. He's really fascinated by what are the points of contact between the body and the mind. That's one of the reasons why he writes this. I'm convinced, I was convinced early on, why he writes this treatise about tefillin, phylacteries, and especially the ones you place on your head, right? Because he's working with mystical ideas. That sort of this is how... You know, the sort of the placing of phylacteries, which of course contain scrolls of, of, of passages from the Pentateuch, right? Sort of like small Torah scrolls, so to speak, many, you know, passages from Deuteronomy and Exodus and so on. Um, the, 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 the act, the mitzvah, the performance of laying tefillin, especially on your head, is how one connects, so to speak, the divine mind to the human body through the mind, right? It's point sort of. I mean, that's just one example, but throughout, it's sort of the relationship between body and mind exercises him a great deal, and also hence the interest in Maimonides, who's very interested in this. 
And he's also very interested in, in the relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish morality because he does not discount non-Jewish morality. Here, too, he follows Maimonides in that he's another medieval rationalist thinkers and that he believes that there is such a thing as natural law, right? That, 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 that human, I don't think reason, reason as we use it is too thin a word to capture what I think the medievals mean by Seichel. So sort of, I would say like the human mind or human understanding um, can recognize moral principles on its own. And these moral principles seem to be embedded in the very nature of things. By the way, here I would recommend, uh, you know, Alexander Altman, um, the late, great, magnificent Alexander Altman in 1944 published this article on Sa'adya and Sa'adya's um, understanding the reasons for the commandments. And, um, you know, Sa'adya is the one who first introduces this in philosophical terms, this distinction between, you know, laws derived from what's usually translated as, as, as mind, as ration, reason, akal in Arabic, and those that are, that are sort of samiat, um, samiat, you know, those that you hear from outside, either are revealed to you by God and or the tradition um, and and Altman shows that when Saadia says akol, he doesn't, and or what gets translated as seichel in he into medieval Hebrew, he doesn't mean rational ratiocination in a narrow sense. He means sort of like the human mind, including moral sense and moral intuitions, and moral intuitions as they are processed by the mind. So Rav Cook subscribes to that, which also means that universe that that that. Things like the seven Noahide commandments or sort of the more general principles of justice, ethics, morality, etc., are valid, are things that on which Jewish morals, ethics, thought builds, right? That there is a common, and this is like where he's not, Rav Cook is never a, a liberal, but he has points of contact here with humanism in a sense, that there's such a thing as a common foundation of human experience, as far as he's concerned, also endowed by God. Um, which the Jew- on which the Jewish people build towards transcendence and build towards a greater vision as far as he sees it, right? So Zionism helps him understand. It gives him a way of, of, of working with these ideas, say, okay, then redemption, the messianic redemption entails the redemption of the body too, and the bo- redemption of the body as precedent to the redemption of the mind and the soul. And, and, and there is something in the Jewish entrance onto this world historical stage that is that, 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 that mandates a kind of participation in the larger moral life of humanity. Right. And so, um, and Zionism helps him, helps him understand that. Like, you know, we often lose sight of the fact that like Zionism was for many people a philosophical movement and way of dealing with philosophical problems. In his case, it's like, what's the relationship between the Jewish body and the Jewish soul? And what's the relationship between like Jewish morals and non-Jewish morals? Because also one thing that's striking about Rav Cook, especially for a capitalist, is that at least in the writings that I've seen of his, you never find a demonization of non-Jews. Or for that matter, demonization of women. Um, You find where you find critiques of not of non-Jews in general, but of Christianity is during World War One. It's something I talk about a lot in, in, in my earlier book. Um, but there's also one other thing that Zionism helps him with. And this is, and this sort of harks back to the, um, 
the title of my earlier book on him, Mystic in a Time of Revolution. Um, and it enables him to develop what I call a theodicy of modernity. Right? Um, you know, we are all still living through the, 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 the aftershocks of the collapse of traditional Jewish life in Europe, starting in the 18th century and then through the 19th and of course the 20th. Um, and he needs to understand, you know, as far as he's concerned, if God is directing history, right? And this is where this this is part also where Lithuanian Kabbalah is important to him. If there is some unseen hand of providence guiding human history, how's all this working? And here, and this is also like the most remark, one of the most remarkable things, Verov Cook, like I said earlier, his willingness to take seriously the thoughts and experiences of of the people who are rebelling against him and his colleagues and his willingness to say, you know, the rebellion against us is coming from somewhere. It's not crazy. They say our religious ideas are outmoded and they're not wrong. They say our ideas are primitive and they're not off. They say we don't care about social justice and they have a point. They say that we don't care about aesthetics as a feature of human existence. And actually they're right that we should. Right. So he, so at the same time, and then the, but then here he's working. So it's like, but then you'd say, okay, rabbi, but then why does it need to be rebellious? Why can't we just have like a discussion societies? Why can't we just have something like, you know, some version, you know, like whatever the kinds of things that modern Orthodox university students talk about. And this is actually where he draws on some mystical thought, and particularly Chabad thought, and then this relation, and this notion of dilug, right? That a new creation, the creation of something truly new, requires, so to speak, a kind of skipping or jumping over the present, right? So he says that 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 precisely that he uses the word chutzpah, right? Sort of the chutzpah of the, I mean, the, sort of the idea that the chutzpah during the time in the in the early, in the early stages of the messianic era, that's something that that. That, we sh- that appears in the mission already and, you know, um, you know, in, 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 in sort of the turn of the second and third centuries. But um, this idea that sort of these cataclysmic changes are the birth of something new, right? All of his rabbinic colleagues just see most of this as just like a total disaster or maybe something that can be salvaged here and there. But he says, no, there's actually, he's, you know, and, and, and that there's something wonderful about this revolution. There's something genuinely new being created here. Um, and again, I think that it emerges out of now the naivete. Something that I think about Ruff Cook in general, he's one of these thinkers who, the, and, and this is something I think you see throughout his life, and one could talk about it at greater length. The, the deeper he goes, the more compelling he is. You know, looking at the Zionist movement and seeing this isn't just a bunch of miscreants who want to, like, eat pork chops and have a good time, right? These are people who have a different conception of what a Jew's relationship to their bodies ought to be, right? These are people who have a different conception of the place of Jewish ethics in the world. You know, at the sort of at the deeper levels, the deeper currents, the tectonic levels, he's like remarkably insightful and profound, right? Um, and the closer you get to like his, to like trying to deal with like 
the actual motivations of political actors in daily life and like how to convince people of things the the, the more his 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 sheer otherworldliness just like gets in the way Right. So an example that I love to quote is that he has um, a line in these these early essays at the turn of the 20th century where he sort of comes out as a supporter of Jewish nationalism. You know, he has this he has this passage that you're reading it and sort of on its face. It seems like crazy that he's sort of turning to these young revolutionaries saying, you know, you ought to grow peyote, you ought to grow your side locks because, you know, as a uniform national aesthetic is a very important part of any national renaissance which you just read and say like rabbi like what in god's name are you trying to like you know what planet are you on and then a few lines later he says because of course if jewish nationalism becomes divorced from jewish tradition it just becomes an excuse for chauvinism and violence whoa so like this incredible naivete about sort of how to quote unquote convince these young radicals to like start coming back to the observance of traditional religious law with this remarkably arresting insight about the Zionist movement as a whole and the ethical pitfalls of nationalism, right? And you see this over over, um, and over again with him. Rev Cook's thought was an admixture. We've discussed a bunch of these different things already, both in this interview as well as the last one, of modern philosophy, Jewish traditional sources, Kabbalah, and, and, and other things as well. So do you think when Rav Cook puts these things together and develops his, his theology, his philosophy, they mix well together or are they like oil and water and they don't quite fit together? Well, I, I think they, I mean, it means also, you know, like there's a large question in Rav Cook studies, does he have a system? You know, um, and the most recent argument that he does is put forward in this magisterial four-volume work by Yosef Avivi, one of the greatest living scholars of Kabbalah. Uh, Kabbalah in general, not only Rav Kook, where he argues that Rav Kook actually has a very full-blown, well-thought-out theological system um, down to its down to its details. Not sure about that. You know, um, I, uh, Akiva Ernst Simon, uh, Martin Buber's disciple, um, himself wonderful, educated the father of Uriel Simon, the contemporary Bible scholar. You know, had this once time talking about Buber. He said, you know, there's two kinds of religious thinkers: the ones who think that God has truth, and the other who think the others who think that he has a system. So presumably Rav Kook is in the first camp, though there are systemic elements. I do think they hold together. What do you mean? They hold together. They do offer a coherent vision of what, I mean, you know, is every jot or tittle lined up? Is every, does he, and the time, does he seem to contradict himself? Yes. Also because he's developing over time, right? I mean, at times he's aware of his development over time. You know, I, I used to think this and now I think that because he's also very aware of his own self-consciousness. And this is where Hasidic thought, one of the places where Hasidic thought influences him is the idea of the tzaddik, right? Sort of in, in Hasidut, the tzaddik is the exceptional individual who is a channel for God's energies and presence in the world. And Rav Kook, I believe I'm not the only student of his writings who thinks this comes to see himself as a tzaddik in the Hasidic sense. Um, it's at some times, but his, uh, his conception of how, of what the tzaddik does is like the tzaddik thinks and sort of if the tzaddik can put together in, in his mind and, and it always, I mean, language is gendered. Yes. For him, it always is a he way it is for most Kabbalah and Hasidim. Um, if the tzaddik can put together a synthesis in his mind, that actually itself is an event that's that it's an event with with significance in the world 
right? That's sort of a healing consciousness um, in the world. Um, you know, does it does it hold together as what? It depends on what you're looking at for as, as, as an interpretation and an understanding of the historical moment and a way of seeing different sorts of currents and so on. Also, as again, I think I mentioned to you before, um, you know, when Rav Kook, who are the modern philosophers that Rav Kook deals with? He's dealing with German idealists. He's dealing with romantics, right? He's not dealing with empiricists like, you know, David Hume or something like that. Um, there is a coherence. The question is, how far does it go and for what? I mean, one of my contentions in the field of Rav Kook studies is that he is not a political thinker. I mean, his work is always cited in, in political debates, down, including nowadays in present-day Israel. But I don't see him as a political thinker, by which I mean somebody who gives a whole lot of concerted thought to things like the institutions of government and the state and um, and and the, the, the mechanisms of public deliberation and, and so on. He's just not there. You know, there are one or two passages where he talks about, you know, the state, the, 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 the putative, well, one day he calls it Medinat Yisrael because it means like the state of the Jewish people, you know, which will be, the, you know, God's, the, the, the throne of God's presence in the world. And, and, and it's a passage that gets quoted a lot. And I contend that, that, that one of the reasons it's quoted all over, it's just like one passage in, in, of, of many. I mean, he printed it in his lifetime, but still, I think one of the reasons that passage is, is, is so cited so often because it's one of the only places he ever actually talks about the state. Right. And, and many religious Zionist thinkers, um, they didn't talk about the state. And my colleague, Alex Kay, who you may know in his book, The Invention of Jewish Theocracy, points out that even the Zionist thinkers who thought much more than Rav Cook did about governance and the state, they, too, they tended not to think about the parliament as a governing body. They tend to think more about the executive, sort of like, you know, which, which seems like a much more, you know, a carryover of, of, a, of an older form of authority. Um so, so as always, it's coherent for what? And, and in what ways do we read him, right? You know, if you're reading him to understand a chapter in um, modern Jewish history, modern Jewish thought, or as a chapter, and one of the things that I've tried to do in my work, successfully or not, I don't know, is also to convey that, 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 that he is a chapter in the history of modern thought in general, right? That this is like an interpretation of modernity that needs to be looked at alongside others. You know, and this is part of the story, part of like enlarging the canon of modern thought and so on and so forth. Um, so you could read him that way. If you are reading him as a guide to contemporary politics, whatever you might say, no, then no, no, this is coherent at all. Right? You're totally misunderstanding this, that, or the other thing. Um, uh, I mean, two other issues here. One is like, how do you coordinate his theological writing with his, with his legal writing? And, you know, rivers of ink get written on that. Sometimes they seem to go together, you know, other, other times they don't. And, and also this gets to this question, finally cycling back to his son, Tsuyuda, right? How, how do I choose to interpret him? And this, let me backtrack. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a distinction to be made and there's lots of different ways to make it. One is that I especially like an essay I read years ago by James Gordley in the Festschrift for David Dalby, the scholar of Jewish Roman law, on um, the distinction between scholasticism and humanism. Obviously, these are terms from pre-modern intellectual life. But in general, I mean, 
the distinction is that 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 humanists try to understand their posture, their task as they see it, is that they are people living in an historical moment, trying to understand the works of people who were living in a different historical moment. And to sort of go back and forth between their understanding and that. The scholastic takes works as a whole and has to read them as a coherent whole because they are taking works as an authoritative canon for the present. You don't have to be religious. Like any any judiciary does this, right? I mean, part of why, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision. And one of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons and you say why this is like an astonishingly dramatic development. But one of them is because it's rare for a court to simply say this precedent was wrong, right? Because legal traditions are traditions. Something that is working in a tradition is working with like precedents and and it needs to, it can't re-examine itself. If the Supreme Court, every time the Supreme Court disagrees with something prior, it says, well, that was wrong, then the system can't endure. So turning to present day Jewish life in, in general in Israel in particular, right? do you want to read Ralph Cook's work as a unified corpus that is authoritative and that cannot brook internal contradiction or do you not? For some people, the answer to the question is no, I do. I do. I need him. He's the foundational thinker of religious Zionism. You know, it is, is, is as it says in rabbinic literature, you know, from his mouth we leave, we, from his mouth we live and his waters we drink. So I can't abide contradictions. I can't say he ever changed his mind because those are not the purposes for which I'm reading this. Um, and some Sviuda and others and his disciples are like that. Or sometimes they'll sort of, they might draw a strong cleavage between, well, everything he said before he came to the land of Israel, you can discount. And then some might say that at the same time. Um, and here too, I would argue that how I choose to interpret a text, a figure, a body of doctrines, what have you, is an intellectual choice, it's an aesthetic choice, but it's also a moral choice, especially if I'm looking for this bad guidance on how to live. So I don't claim to say that I understand Rev Cook better than his son did. I understand him differently, and I understand him, me being me, me being Unimersky, living in 2022, has great respect. Needless to say, you know, I mean, one of the challenges about writing about Rav Cook in a scholarly is how do you write about a figure about whom you're in, you're so utterly in awe? I mean, that's a real challenge, too. Um, but, you know, and with, with the greatest respect for his son and so on. But I, I, I really do believe that how we choose to interpret things are also moral choices. You know, I, I imagine, and here I'm going to like sort of like, you know, say something which probably undoes any pretense I might have of being a, a quote unquote academic student of things. You know, I imagine that when I get to, you know, the pearly gates and come before God's judgment seat, um, and if God asks me, um, you know, why did you, why did you act with cruelty towards someone on this, that day? If I say to him, well, you know, master of the universe, I thought that Rev Cook said this was okay. I imagine, like to think, I don't know, that God would tell me, don't worry about Rav Cook. I spoke to him. He and I were great. We're in good shape. He's wonderful. That's not the issue. Why did you do something you knew to be cruel and wrong? I don't think that's something I can escape by saying, well, Rav Cook said, you know, to the extent to which a way in which I interpret him might generate suffering in the present. By the way, I don't want to say that my moral choices are the only ones that avoid suffering. 
I mean, I think that one can one one can perfectly well argue with my moral and political stances and say that no, Mirsky, your moral and political stances actually enhance suffering in the world. I think that's like, and you know, I don't mean to claim that I'm the only person or that people who quote unquote think like me are the only ones who care about cruelty, but that's the way in which I go about it. And I think I think that way of like putting the stakes on the tape that puts the the stakes on the table. Now, but one last comment about scholarship, getting back to the humanist thing in, in, in humanistic scholarship. And I see myself as part of that tradition. There is this moral claim that human beings can understand one another, even if they're very different. Like sometimes when I talk in class, you know, I mean, there's times in like, you know, I've been at times teaching and like describing the worldview of one group or other and people, you know, I've had the students raise their hand and say, wait, are you the spokesman? That's obviously people like disagree with it. I say, well, no, but like fundamental premise here is that human beings can understand one another and what we do with these tools, these concepts, these categories, these methods, it's a way to try to enable us to understand one another so that we can make better choices. I want to understand the people who disagree with me on their own terms. Most of the time, they don't think they're being evil, right? I mean, I think this also gets to larger issues in society today. People have a hard time thinking that the people on the other side, who are so obviously evil as far as they're concerned, don't see themselves that way, right? It's very, it's also why, for instance, like this takes us a little bit of field, but I don't like this term illiberal because most people would never use it to describe themselves that way. I mean, one thing that I discovered in my years of Less when I, I, I've worked in, you know, government structures, U.S. State Department, that sort of thing. But I've also been involved in grassroots politics, especially here in Jerusalem. With people who disagree with me profoundly and who do, and sort of were trying to take things in directions that I really disagree with. And one of the things, I mean, it was amazing, you know, how long it took me to figure this, to notice this. But that they actually didn't see themselves as the bad guys. They were working with an affirmative conception of the good. Um, so one needs to try and understand that and then take the move of saying, okay, on the basis of this understanding, and this is where you don't want to descend into relativism, into like sort of this caricature of relativism, and then say, okay, on the basis of this understanding, which is the best understanding I can muster, how do I want to choose? What do I want to do that will hopefully do something to lessen the amount of avoidable suffering in the world. And again, about that people, that, that's also how I see this seemingly petty fogging, ridiculous work of like nailing down things in footnotes and all of that, how, how this relates to, to something larger and, and, um, and actually important. Moving from one area of interpretation to another, so from actual textual interpretation to translation, another form of interpretation. Oh, Oh, yeah. So I know that at least some of your work on Rav Cook has been translated. So of that work which has been translated, how has that been received? And and what? Ah, Yes, my my earlier book on Rav Cook was translated into Hebrew um, and published. It It was not just translated, it was also adaptive. I mean, I reworked it. I reworked it and said, okay, that was an interesting process. An Israeli trade publisher, Kinered, which was one of Israel's larger, Kinered's Moradvir, which was one of Israel's larger trade, pub, commercial publishing houses, was interested in publishing an English, a Hebrew edition of that. It took a number of years to do that. Um, the first draft of that, I mean, you, know, you can't really, tra- translating yourself is, of course, like a fool's errand. 
The first draft of the translation was done by my friend Joshua Greenberg, who's somebody who both understood the material well and had a real literary sense. Um, then the second draft was built together by me and my wife, Tamar Biala. It was quite a relationship exercise. <laughs> Glad to say it was a good one in the end. Um, the it's In some ways, the Hebrew edition is better than the English edition. Um, in some ways, it's tighter. Part of it is because I'm sitting working through these texts, through, working through the manuscript with my wife, who knows these texts too, and periodically say, wait a second, who's talking here? Is this you or Rev Cook talking, et cetera? And of course, one had to adapt it to an Israeli audience. Now, what's really interesting is the reception that that book has gotten. Whereas, you know, I mean, I, the book came out in Hebrew and I very quickly found myself being interviewed on radio programs and being interviewed on television and, you know, profiled in a very substantial news in a very important newspaper um, that this was a very live topic. This was a very, very live topic. I was frankly surprised by how positively the book was received. Because I was presenting him in ways that he's not, that people don't usually see him in Israel. I was presenting him very much as a human being, a great and colossal human being, but a human being who sometimes makes mistakes and sometimes falters and sometimes, you know, finds himself caught in situations that he wasn't trying, that he was, that he sort of got himself into and so on. Um, and yet I was, I was struck by not, of course, not all the reactions were positive, but the overwhelming majority were. And this is actually a broader point. It has to do, frankly, with Israeli politics today. Um, no names, but a very well-known writer who I'm acquainted with and correspond with sometimes was one of the folks who signed a manifesto. I think when Sally Rooney came out with this thing saying that, you know, I refuse to have my works translated to Hebrew unless it's a public publishing house that like willingly repudiates like Israeli government or, you know, publicly repudiates Israeli government policy and so on and so forth. Um, uh, so then, and a number of other prominent writers signed on to this. And one of them is a writer with whom I'm in touch. And I decided, of course, not to get into this with her on social media because I actually wanted to have an exchange. And I wrote her and said, you know, like, I mean, I get, I'm, I'm very critical of many things in Israeli policy too. I, I don't think that this sort of thing is helpful. And she wrote me back and said, well, you know, um, yeah, but like one has to do something. And this is like, you know, something that we can do. And just like, you can't stand idly by while all these things are going on. So so I wrote her back and I said, you know, I recently, and she she had read the English version of my, the earlier version of my, the original edition of my first book on Rev Cook. And she liked it. Even though politically, she's in a very, very different place. I mean, she's well, well to the left even of me as well. Um, and I said, you know, like that book you read, I, pu- I just published a Hebrew edition of it. And I'm getting letters about it from people who really like it, including people on the right, (laughs) including people living in settlements who read the things that I say about those uses of Rav Cook's thought and so on and so forth. And yet they really like it and they think they're learning a lot from it and they think it may be changing like sort of how they see aspects of him, this and that. And I said, if I had signed a manifesto like the one you did and refused to publish this book with this major Israeli publisher, unless this major Israeli publisher essentially put itself out of business, I would not be able to get to those readers. I would not be able to have that conversation. And we have back and, and I have back and forth with those readers. Um. So that's that's why, and it's also writing about him in for an Israeli audience is different because for so many people in Israel, especially in the religious Zionist world, he's a member of the family. He's somebody they grew up with. 
I mean, you know, my wife growing up in Beersheba in the 1970s and 80s, Rav Cook is who you talked about. Rav Cook is who she was teaching. As a teenager, she was already teaching classes on Rav Cook, right? This is what you do. And it's also, it's, by the way, this is just a broader lesson. As I mentioned earlier, my graduate work was in, not in a Jewish studies program, but in a religion program. You know, it's eye-opening to see, like, here's a colossal figure who's largely unknown in the English-speaking world. When I was in, when I was doing my doctoral work, I was received when I sort of started working on Rav Kook very seriously. People who in were engaged in the study of mainstream traditions and Christianity and and mainline Protestant and Catholic Christianity in particular were very dismissive. One very important figure at Harvard, at least at the time, who said to me, gee, I always thought you were interested in political theology. Why do you want to write about some obscure mystic nobody's ever heard of? And I said, well, you know, this is somebody who's sort of like as big as Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, for instance, or almost as big as Martin Luther King is in the United States. And he sort of gave me this like slightly cynical look and said, well, if you say so. It was the professors who actually spent their lives working in things like non-mainstream, non-mainline Christian denominations, or my professors in Islamics, or or my Buddhism professor. I mean, you know, my, my Islamics advisor Bill Graham, or my my, my uh, Buddhist Buddhism professor Charles Hallisey who just assumed that, of course, there's these like really interesting, important, vital figures who they don't know about, which is just a great eye opener. You know, um, I thought I knew something about Rev Cook before I started writing, you know, the, what, what became the dissertation on him. And it turned out there was an, an awful lot I didn't know. Um, and it's just sort of a, it's a lesson I try not to forget. Thanks a lot for all this, both this interview as well as the last one. For oh, me. Thank been... you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your, your indulging me. It's such, uh, it's such great length. And you're a marvelous listener. I appreciate that. It's, it's, been, it's been great. And I think that we'd love to, even though we heard last time, we want our listeners for this podcast episode also to hear what you're working on next to give us that answer right. as well. So the next, so I'd like, I'm take, well, you know, I've been working a lot on Gordon, as I've mentioned and so on, but um, I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier in my working life, um, I was in the Human Rights Bureau of the U.S. State Department and sort of in those preoccupations um, have never left me. And the, the, the next, I mean, I probably will come back to Rev Cook one day and also maybe doing some other projects on the long side. But the next big thing I'd like to dig into is actually the post-war years. And the years in which, you know, this, the, the, the post-war order that is coming apart coming unstuck uh, before our, our eyes so dramatically to look at the years in the 1940s when it was coming together, when this mix of forms of internationalism and forms of nationalism and forms of liberalism and forms of fascism and communism and so on are all sort of coalescing into this baggy structure that we think of as the post-Cold War world. Um, so so it's an, something like... Um, you know, I mean, just the fact that like, you know, the year 1948 is, is the year that Israel is created and it's the year of universal declaration of human rights and it's the year of the Berlin airlift and the desegregation of the U S military. And there's, there's so many things going on, um, which, which I think 
sort of if you stand back and take a look, you you, you sort of it can give us some perspective on part of what's um, coming um, unstuck today. And also given the sort of things that I think about, there were theological ideas also at work in the post-war world in the struggle. I mean, you know, if sort of, you know, the, Rev Cook is one theologian who's extremely, extremely important for me. Another is Reinhold Niebuhr. And so to speak, and, and he's a presence looming over um, things that, I, that I'd like to think about. You know, not simply to write an intellectual history of, of aspects of the Cold War, but a sort of engaged study of what all of that might have to, to, say, to say to us today, bearing in mind that an awful lot has happened in the intervening decades. That's kind of what I've been thinking about. And then some ideas for some other projects down the road and some like of course literary type things um a few years ago i bumped into a friend of mine who i hadn't seen in a long time and he told me he'd read my book he said wow i really he himself wasn't an, an academic at all he said i really liked your book you know and you know you're a very good writer you ought to think about writing fiction and i said to him you know i'm sure any number of colleagues would tell you that i already have <laughs> um, you know those are things that i i like like to think about as well thank you so much We've been talking to Yehuda Mirsky, author of Towards Mystical Experience of Modernity, The Making of Ralph Cook, 1865 to 1904, published in 2021 by Academic Studies Press. Happy reading, my friends.